Morning, church. How we doing? Merry Christmas. And I, I just felt like I had to say that. I'm going to say it next week for sure because it is. But, you know, I want to say Merry Christmas. Hopefully... Uh, this has been a fun Advent season for everybody that you have been enjoying where we've been going as we've been studying the names of God. And I was thinking about this week, um, <clears throat> all that's going on, and I was thinking about this idea of peace, and then I started thinking about traditions and families. And so it's not an ongoing tradition in the Price household, but occasionally, from time to time, we'll pick up a puzzle. I like puzzles. I don't know what it is about puzzles. Maybe you guys are big puzzle families. Um, it's interesting because you're taking something that's broken and you're putting it back together. Uh, you're, you're trying to get it back to a, a complete state, the way it was designed to be. Uh, I don't know your puzzle techniques. There's a lot of puzzle techniques I've come to find over the years. Some people like to, you know, get them out and they put them in color groups. Some of them like to put them in shape groups. Uh, at our house, we're an edge family. We like the edge done first, right? You got to get that edge done so you know where everything's at. And then you start to do it. But if you think about it, there are two puzzle connections that are the best. The first one, right? And, and I'll get to the last one in a second and how I cheat my way into always getting the last one. But there's the idea of like, the first one, it means what? That restoration has begun. The project is underway and it's starting to take place. The thing that was broken is now becoming together. And the most fun one is clearly the last one, right? Now, I'm not saying that somebody may or may not put the, a puzzle piece in their pocket every time they start a puzzle so they can put the last one in. I'm not saying that. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But why? Because we love to see it when it comes together at the end. We want to see the picture the way it was designed to be. It's bigger than the box. There's this moment you're like, that's it. That's how it's supposed to be. Yeah, I truly believe in our DNA that we want that. We want to see broken things become whole again. We don't like it when they're not complete. And a puzzle that's missing a piece is a broken puzzle, isn't it? You may be wondering, Simon, why are we spending so much time on puzzles when we're talking about Christmas? Because where we're going to be today is it encompasses the very idea of what we're talking about and where we're going. And it's really what God wants us to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us as we do that. Now, if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Um, we've been kind of in this for the last month. We've been reading through it and reading through it and reading through it, um, studying the names that we have for the Messiah that was going to come, the Christ that would come, that we know as Jesus, and just exploring what do these titles mean? What, is it, what does it mean when he says that he's a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father? And we'll get to this one this week. So we're going to start in verse 2 and work our way through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoils. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressors, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and the battle of tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." 
of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray and get into this passage. Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to come and to look at what it means for you to be the Prince of Peace what that means for us, what that means for the world, what that means for our relationship with the Father. Lord, I ask that as you speak through me, there's anything that I've written that's really not from you, that you would just take it from, from my notes, from my mind, from my mouth. If there's anything that you want me to say that I don't have written down, that I would be um, responsive to you in this moment, Holy Spirit, to speak the truth that you would have for the men and the women that are here today. Lord, I thank you that you've brought us peace. I ask that as we explore that, we would know you more fully and worship you more fully, that we would identify the areas in our life where we do not have peace and realize that you came to bring peace to those areas. We love you and we pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. So as we jump into this section, it's interesting, chapter uh, 9, verse 2, is, is it paints this darker picture at first, right? It's talking about brokenness, it's talking about darkness, and so the writer's trying to convey that things aren't really that great right now, uh, and what's going on is we've looked at these kings that have come before them, they really haven't performed at the level that, the, that God would want them to or that the people would desire them to, and so he's saying that there is a brokenness and there is a darkness that's taking place but there's a promise and the promise is that one will come and will make things whole again and he's referred to as the prince of peace now this term it's very rich it's got a lot of meaning now i'm going to try my best to unravel this the best that i can to understand the words that are being used but i really want to make sure that we can kind of break the words down to understand how they come together now maybe when you think of uh you know, Prince, maybe you think of Aladdin and Prince Ali. That's who I go to when I think of. Or maybe when you think of peace, you think of, you know, someone who lives in a VW bus that doesn't shower a whole lot that says stop war. Maybe that's who you think of when you think of those terms. But there's a lot more going on. So I want to start with the idea of Prince, the idea of the Son of God. See, it's a representative of the king, an official, a commander a district leader, a person of note, a head first, higher being. The the word prince would be broken down in the Bible, a male member of a royal family other than the sovereign, especially the son of a sovereign. It's interesting, I was talking with my with my son yesterday and we were just kind of talking about like you know the gold frankincense and myrrh and he says hey how come these are the gifts that they brought it's like is there a significance to those gifts and i'm like you are very smart because yes there's a ton of significance to those gifts the reality is those are gifts that were bestowed upon royalty so when you look at these wise men or kings that would come The kings are bringing kingly gifts to the one true king. They're acknowledging that he is royalty, that he has a prominent position, a position over them, and they're coming to worship him. And the thing that I love most is the gifts, whatever, they came and worshiped. They got on their knees and said, this is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. This is the one that was promised that we are waiting for. So when we talk about Prince, where it's better than Prince Harry, it's better than Prince William. As a matter of fact, the current king held the title Prince Charles, didn't he? There would be a succession in line for kingship. 
This position means that he has authority. Jesus tells us that he has authority. He says this in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. All authority has been given to me. And then he goes, therefore, so then he says, I have authority and now I'm going to tell you what my command is. He's establishing his authority. He's establishing his rule and reign. See, it means that he is the son of the king. He says it over and over again in the Bible. There is this really interesting interaction where Jesus is talking with his disciples, and it's Philip, and he says, he says, Jesus, show us the Father. And there's this really interesting response that Jesus says to them, and you can, you can, you can sense how he feels about this in this moment in John 14, in verse 9. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, how long have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? See, he's saying, I am the perfect extension, representation of God come down. Incarnate. See, Jesus is royalty. He's not commonplace, yet he became commonplace to show us the Father. He humbled himself. It says, the Bible says, he humbled himself and took on flesh. I think we forget to pause on this a lot. Him taking on flesh was a downgrade. It wasn't like he's like, oh, I get to become a human. No, he left the throne room of God where he was being worshipped and praised and honored and came down to earth. He said, I'll take on flesh. I'll humble myself and become like a human. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he cares about us. But him being a prince tells us that he is about one thing, kingdom work, isn't he? And that the kingdom works about bringing glory to God in all things and executing the plan of salvation to this dark and broken world that needs to be restored. Now, the next part of that title would be peace, the shalom of our life. So this idea of of prince of peace, the one with authority, this messenger of peace, the one who's going to bring peace, what does it really mean? So when we think of the idea of peace, we tend to go to the idea of the absence of conflict, the absence of war. That seems to be where most people's minds drift when they think of the idea of peace, that there's a conflict, that there's a problem, and if we had peace, it would remove that problem. But it's more than just removing a problem. It's not just the absence of something. It's the presence of something as well. Now, the word that we're going to use to understand peace is shalom. That's the Hebrew word that's used in that section. It means peace, harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, tranquility. It can be used as hello and goodbye. It's a big word. It's bigger than the word that we use in this day and this age. So it's really about the, the totality of the person and their well-being and who they are. So remember the story when David goes to visit his brothers and they're at war with the Philistines? And so he goes up to them and what does he ask them? How is your shalom? How is your peace? 
It wasn't about the war, was it? Because they were at war. They were at a battleground ready to have a battle. There wasn't peace in the sense of a war. They were saying, how are you doing? How is your soul? What's going on in your heart? What's going on inside of you? See, when shalom's not present, everything feels off. You ever have those days you're like, I just, something's wrong. Something's not right. Something isn't going the way it's supposed to. Things aren't clicking the way that they're supposed to click. What you're experiencing in that moment is a lack of shalom. If you've ever fought with your spouse, not me, just other people, and you, you have a, you're bickering and you're fighting, maybe it's over finances or what's going on or the kids or whatever, and then you like go to bed and you're laying there and it's really, really quiet, but it's super, super loud because the tension is so much. There's a lack of shalom in that moment. Or maybe you have a conversation with a friend and it doesn't go quite the way you wanted it to. And then you start wondering, are we okay? Are you okay? Can we be okay? And then you start wondering, like, are they going to be this party? Are they going to be there? And you're like, should I go? Should I not go? That is a lack of shalom. And when we feel it, it doesn't feel right. This week, I was talking with Annette, and every time I write these sermons, God just beats me up. He just works on my heart. And there was, this, there was a few days where I just, I'm like, I am just not in shalom. I'm just, something's off. And it's like, well, you better go figure that out with God. And I'm like, thanks. Now I'm not in shalom with you. And so there was just all, it was, but I was good. I had to wrestle through. God, what's going on in my heart? Like, what's happening? I'll tell you, it revolves around just stress and worry of things that I think I have control over, but I really don't. It had to do with relationships that weren't uh, the way I wanted them to be. And I had to just get to that point where, like, God, you're in control. Like, why am I trying to control this? You are my shalom. See, now, the opposite's great, too. When shalom is present, when the world just feels right, you ever have those moments now, I say it's usually like right after a Thanksgiving dinner, as long as you didn't talk about politics. And so it's like you finish eating, you kind of, you pop that top button and you kind of lean back and you're warm and you're happy and you're content and you're like, this is fantastic. It's that feeling that after you've worked on a project for a really long time, whether that's something that you've built or something you've worked on or something you wanted to deliver or you're trying to prepare, and you finally step back and it's done, you're like, yes, that is good. That is a good feeling. The thing that, was, that was, I was laboring over has all come together, and there's this moment of completion. That is what it feels like when shalom is there. This is why I try to start this idea with a, a, a picture of a puzzle being put together. Even if you have a 5,000-piece puzzle and you've put 4,999 4, pieces in and that one's missing, that puzzle isn't right. It doesn't look the way it's supposed to. We would say, that's broken, but you're just missing the one. In the definition of shalom, it's not complete. It's not the way it's supposed to be. See, this man, Jesus, known as the Prince of Peace, is the one who's going to bring wholeness and being complete to the world and to us and specifically our lives. That there was something that was out of whack and broken. So I want to go back to Judges 
And in the book of Judges in chapter 6, we're introduced to a guy named Gideon. And there's this guy named Gideon, and, and really what's going on in Israel during that time is Once again, the people of Israel had made a lot of poor choices. They were worshiping false gods. They had turned away from Yahweh, the one true God, and they started doing things that they know they shouldn't have been doing. And so what ends up happening is the nation starts being punished for that. And so it's so bad at this point that they are living in caves and in holes, and they are hiding. They're trying to, like, make crops, and then the enemies would come in and wipe out their crops. And this angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, literally as he's trying to like, you know, harvest some wheat in a hole, hiding from people so he won't get seen. And it says this in Judges 6, 23 through 24. But the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. So what's going on there? So he, he, he makes this, this moment of like, hey, you need to get right. And so really what God's doing with Gideon said, hey, let's put the first two pieces together in the puzzle. Let's start the restoration for Israel. And what he actually calls him to do is to go into the town and to tear down the altar of the false god that they had been worshiping. And he goes in there with a couple of oxes, he tears that thing down, and he builds a new altar, and then he sacrifices a bull on it, and then he calls it something. And so what he ends up calling is the Lord is peace. Remember we talked about a couple weeks ago that the Lord keeps revealing his name throughout the Bible? Like, my name means this, and my name means... And so he meets them where they are, and he gives them these names of who he is and builds off of that. The Lord is peace is really Yahweh is shalom. That is what he's saying. That, that is who this is. The God of the Bible is shalom. He is complete in wholeness. What he was doing is he was starting the process for the people of Israel to come back to God and worship him. And he does these crazy things where he shows up and he fights the battle and he does everything so he receives the glory. And then the nation is reestablished as a nation that is under God and is loving him. I say it all the time. We are just like Israel. Like when you read the Bible and you're like, those Israelites are dumb. Just consider yourself an Israelite and stick with that first statement you said because you're right. We do this all the time. We walk away from God. We rebel against God. We seek other things to bring us joy and happiness and hope and peace in our lives. When... When all of this is going on, when shalom in our lives is broken, when shalom with each other is broken, when shalom with the nation is broken, we find that most importantly it's because our shalom with God is broken. If our shalom with God is broken, everything falls apart. Everything doesn't work the way it's supposed to. See, God knows how things work best. Yet we think we know better than God all the time. When we decide to do things our way and our ideas and we go outside of God's word, he's like, what are you doing? Like, this is not right. This is not going to bring you peace in your life. This is not going to have you be whole in your life. 
question is this, like, are you lacking shalom in your life? When you think about your life, do you feel like there's just, there's not peace in your life? That there's something that's off in your life? Because it doesn't have to be. You don't have to be in that state. God's gone to great lengths so you don't have to be in that state. But the problem is this, is that we're at war with God. From the moment we're born, we're at war with God. Because of sin, because of rebellion, the Bible would actually say that we are enemies of God. That doesn't seem like very happy news, but it's the reality of what sin has done. When we reject God, when we say, we're right, you're wrong, I'm going to do it my way, I don't care about your way, we're saying, I'm smarter than you. Well, we, would, we would kind of probably never say that out loud, would we? But that's exactly what we're saying when we reject God and do our own thing. See, Romans 5.10 says this, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. See, sin has put us in opposition with God. We are made in his image, and when we don't submit to him and follow him, we are incomplete. We're not who we are meant to be when we live outside of that. And, and what, I, what I want us to understand is that no one understands us more than God and Jesus. No one does. No one understands us more, but he does. He understands that we're at war. He understands how we're living our lives and rebellion to him. And I just want to say this, and I just, being at war with God means you will always lose. I, I just hate to break it to you. Like, he is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present. You ain't winning. And so if we go at war with God, we're in a problem. We can't beat him. He's more powerful. And it's not that he's just more powerful than some evil. He's actually righteous and holy. So he's right in everything he's doing. But it says in Romans 5, 8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, he loved us so much that he was going to create a way for us to be back in shalom, in peace with him. He saw where we were. He understood that we were broken, that we were not whole, that we were not complete. And he says, they can't even, they can't do it. We are like blind people trying to put a puzzle together. It ain't going to happen. But he says, I will come and I will put the puzzle of your life back together. He starts with his birth and it ends with his death on the cross. Him being born is the first two pieces being connected. Him dying on the cross when he said, it is finished, he brought the shalom back to us. He paid the penalty that we deserved on the cross. He gives us his righteousness that we would be with him. And anyone who calls on the name of the Lord and Jesus as their Savior will be saved. My question is this, are you at war with God? Maybe you're like, I've never called Jesus my Lord. I've never bent a knee to Jesus as my Savior. Then you're at war with God, and you will stand before him someday. 
you will have to give an account for your life. And if you're not batting a thousand, you're in trouble. Which is why it's so important that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he met God's standard completely. He batted a thousand. So if our life is now hidden in his life, then when we stand before God, he sees Jesus' perfection, that his standard has been made by what he did on the cross, and we can stand before the Lord. That's what it's saying. Maybe today is the day that you need to bow a knee. Maybe you've been a Christian a really long time, and you've got these little battles in your life. These little areas of things that you know you shouldn't be doing, where you should be going, how you should be talking, things that you're involved in, things that you're looking at, things that you say. I don't, I could do this all day, and then we'd all be convicted. See, you're not, you're not going to gain peace by fighting God. You're going to gain peace by giving up to God. I need to let go and know that someone else has done it. See, we can have peace with God. We can stop this war with God because of what Jesus did, but it doesn't stop there. There's more to it. We can have the peace of God, meaning that it can dwell in our lives every day, no matter where we go, no matter what we're doing. Galatians 5, 22 through 23 talks about the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, right? <laughs> like it's a fruit of the Spirit. Being saved, receiving the Holy Spirit, that it starts to produce these things in our life. Peace is one of those. Where we didn't have peace before, we can have peace. Have you ever, no, let me read this verse first. Let me, let me, let me read this. Uh, in Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, have you ever met someone, and no matter what situation is going on in their life, no matter what's happening in their life, there is a calmness and a peace about them. You ever met someone like that? Like, the world can literally be falling apart in their life. Everything can be going sideways and can be completely horrible. And you go, how is that person not losing it right now? How is that person able, I mean, yes, they may be sad, it may be mourning, it may be hard, and it may be difficult, but there is a peace about them. Where does that come from? Why does that happen? When you understand that this Prince of Peace in your life, what he has done, you know that you're secure. You know that there's nothing that's going to do that, that's going to, that's going to defeat you. Like, you know who's in control in those situations. He has taken care of the biggest problem in our life. So my question is, why do we sweat the small stuff? Now, let me say this before you think I'm some insensitive jerk up here. I'm not saying that what you're going through is not hard. I'm not saying that what you're going through is not difficult. I'm not saying what you're going through is horrible. That's not what I'm saying, okay? But what I am saying is small in comparison to eternal salvation and having your sins forgiven and not being under the wrath of God forever. Like, think on that. 
Everything else does not weigh as much as that, does it? We're talking about eternity. And usually the things that we are stressed over tend to be temporal. And they go and they fade. There's different levels of that, I get that. But the reality is this, is that your biggest problem has been taken care of, so you don't have to worry. Peace in these circumstances, it, it surpasses all understanding to a world that does not understand a God entering into human history, becoming a baby to save his people by sacrificing himself so we could be with them. The world doesn't understand that. But when you have been saved and your eyes have been opened, you've received the Holy Spirit, you look at that, that's the lens you look at everything through. Everything goes through that lens. We know that we're secure. We know that we're saved. We know that we're His. We have peace with God. And the same peace that Jesus had when He bore our sins is what allows the Holy Spirit in our lives that we can have that same thing. As Jesus was on the cross with peace, pointing to God in all things, we now have the Holy Spirit and we can have peace in difficult circumstances and point to Jesus in all things. That's who we are. Where in your life do you need this perspective? Where do you need to change the lens of how you're viewing the situations that you're going through? What are you worrying about right now in your life? What thing is happening that's causing you stress and pain and anguish? What thing do you think that you're in control of that ultimately you're really not? What would it look like to the world, especially in a world like, like now where there's so much conflict, there's so much anger and hate that we could step into those moments and bring a peace, the peace of God in those situations? Do you think they'd notice? Do you think that they'd see something different? Do you think they'd ask, how is it that you can be so calm in this moment? Here's the thing that's so amazing. In John 14, John 14, 27 says this. <clears throat> peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither. Let them, uh, let them be afraid. Let them, neither let them be afraid. This, this peace, this shalom is better than what the world can give. It's better than Zen. It's better than emptying your mind. It's better than anything else because this peace takes away fear. See, the enemy's tool is fear. He wants you to be afraid. He wants you to be immobilized. He wants you to doubt everything. But Jesus says, I give you my peace. When Jesus died for you, he completed the puzzle. He made us whole. We're complete now. He's taken our sin away. He's brought us back to fellowship with God the Father. The right place that we were designed to exist in. From the very beginning of the Garden of Eden. He made them. There was no sin. And they walked with him. And they talked with him. And they spent time with him. And they enjoyed him in the cool of the day. 
says that we can now boldly go before the throne room of God with our prayers and our supplications because we're whole, because we're complete. See, he's brought shalom to the whole world and he's actually called us to take that shalom, that message of the Lord of peace to a world that needs to hear about the Prince of Peace. That's what he's called us to do. It's funny. There's a, well, it's not funny, but there's a war right now, but it seems like there's just always a war waiting in the wings, isn't there? It's like one war ends and the next one picks right back up. And we function differently in a time of war. I remember going through high school when, when, you know, we were going through the Iraq war and then Afghanistan. Like, I just remember being there. Just, there was just a different feel in the air. And when those go away, there's a different breath that takes place in those moments. I would talk with um, older men and women that would talk about World War II, and they would talk about just the tension that was there all the time. It just always existed. They said, but when it ended, it, everything changed. The world was in a different place. Isaiah says this at, at the end of his statement in Verse 7 says this, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. See, in this broken world, war is to be accepted and will keep coming because we are in a sinful, broken world full of sinful, broken people. That is to be expected. But it says when this, this Messiah comes, this Christ, when Jesus comes, his government, meaning his authority, his rule, his reign... no end to peace the hostility is over the hostility is gone like no no end it goes forever that's the beauty that's the promise that we have as we think about you know the, the candles that we lit them we've kind of been moving down a progression as we as we land on peace think about that we were at war with God. God solved the problem, became a human, and died for us. The advent that, that we have to look forward to is going to be the final second coming of Christ where we can be with him and worship him in all of his glory and all of his might. For anyone that is called on the name of Jesus, they will be saved. That's a beautiful thing. Do you, do you need to talk with someone in a non-weird way about this Prince of Peace? Do you need to talk with them that, that there is hope? Do you need to show them the peace that God's given you in their life and be ready to give an answer for who he is and why he's brought peace in your heart? See, as Christians, we have this, this great honor to take the message forward. The world may be trying to shove Christmas out and call it whatever they want to call it, but you can't get away from the fact that it's Christmas time. Everyone knows it's Christmas time. It's a great opportunity to talk about the Savior of the world. It's so simple. It's on, the, it's on the tip of everyone's tongue. Who do you need to talk to? Who do you need to maybe extend forgiveness to? Do you need to lay something down in your life that, that you love more than God right now? Do you need to rest in His work? I just say this, the next time you look at a puzzle, and maybe, maybe you'll be doing puzzles, you know, when we're all off and having some time goof around the house. Remember that your life 
is like a 10,000-piece complex puzzle that there's a lot going on and all these things have to mesh up. But I think about this. You know those puzzles where it's like they're progressive puzzles? Have you ever seen those? Like it's one puzzle and you build it, but then you can build another one and then they connect. Have you ever seen those? They make those. They're bizarre. I'm like, it's just like a, a way to hook you in to keep buying more puzzles. But the reality is this, is that that's what God is doing with all of our lives. He has completed our puzzle and he's completing others and he's connecting those puzzles together because he's calling us to be the church and to go forward with his message. In Ephesians Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As he is working on the puzzle of your life, as he has completed that, he is building us into something else, that he's calling us to go out and to continue to be about the work that he's called us to. See, we can now have shalom with God. We have the shalom of God in our life. Let's be that light. Let's be that hope. Let's be that love. Let's be that peace to the world around us. Let's pray.